I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me oh my, I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me oh my, I have enjoyed that, yes boy. Me oh my, I have enjoyed that. Me oh my, I have enjoyed that, yes boy. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where today I am joined by former Hurricane and Wellington representative Tim Mannix. This interview is slightly different to what I'd done with Salisi and Peter in that it was with a former player, but the beauty of this opportunity was that it was giving me some insight into the transition from the amateur era to the professional era through a player's perspective. We also touched on Tim's coaching experiences over in Ireland and how that sort of prompted him to getting involved with the game when he got back to New Zealand and the difference and challenge it presented from having been a professional athlete. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it and I'll let you hear it all from the hardworking man himself. I guess we'll start off with uh, a young Tim Mannix and I know that you're a staunch Patoni man, so did you grow up in the area? Not really. Uh, we grew up in Woburn, so we were really close to the Hutt Rec and uh, actually played for Hutt Valley Marist as a junior rugby player. So I went to St Peter's and Paul's school and uh, we were linked to the Hutt Valley Marist club. So that's where I sort of started on a Saturday afternoon I, after I used to play my junior rugby, I used to go down to the Hutt Rec and watch uh, the, I think the Hutt club at that, though back in those days and uh, watch them play. So not really a Patoni person initially. I I actually sort of um, ended up down at Patoni through a connection with the O'Hallorans. So Jason O'Halloran and Grant O'Halloran. So they were our neighbours and they were keen Patoni people. And that's probably what sort of got me down to Patoni. Interesting. And so you transitioned from being a young fella and you end up at Silver Stream. What was the, what was the draw to go to, uh, you know, the best school in Wellington? Um, the... Key thing was probably a bit of a family connection with uh, Marist schools. Uh, my dad went to St Bede's and also had a couple of great uncles that were priests and they were involved with uh, Marist schools. So there was always sort of a desire, I guess, for me to to go to probably St Pat Silverstream being the closest one to where we live. Uh, but, you know, that was always uh, probably something that I think uh, dad had sort of thought out. Um, I went to St Bernard's Intermediate, but then always, I think for him, it was about trying to go to a Marist school. And so, like you said, you, you played your junior rugby at Hearts and you're obviously quite a keen rugby player. And so when you got to Silverstream, was that sort of the the main thing that was sort of drawing you into that school as well? or I, I played other sports, so cricket was my other sport. I wasn't particularly great at that age, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, I think the sports opportunity was certainly one of the appeals of going to St. Pat Silverstream, although I was going into the unknown a little bit. I was the oldest in the family, so we didn't really know what uh, what it was like too much. Didn't have a lot of detail going in uh, when I started off in third form. So it was a case of just um, getting up there and uh, you know embracing the opportunities. I think academically, I think that was uh, always probably something that mum and dad were pushing is to try and uh, make sure I did well at school. So I think it was probably, you know, those two things were probably the priorities that sort of set for me when I went in. And... Because you were a member of the first team for two or three years? Yeah, two years. So sixth form and seventh form I was in the team. So 1985 and 1986. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty special time. And because through my own dad, who was uh, who went to the school during the 80s as well, he one of the things he always sort of mentioned to me was the sort of the, the Grand Slam, getting all the traditionals. And you were a member of one of those teams. So 
if you can sort of take us back to that year and you know what sort of culminated in you guys performing so well yeah it was a it was a pretty cool um experience it was my first year on the team so again i was going into the unknown a little bit uh but we had a group of guys that really committed and, and really worked hard i think that was probably one of the key things that i do recall we we trained really hard on our fitness and i think that was one of the things that uh, set us up for success we had a pretty cool season and we weren't the most skilled team, but I think we were certainly one of the hardest working teams. And I think that's what got us through some of our close games. The other thing that also happened that year was we had a new coach, Father Mark Walls, who um, was starting out his first 15 coaching career. And he, I think, always sort of valued hard work. And so I think he sort of set the bar and uh, the players generally um, rose to the challenge and getting themselves fit and ready to go. And... Again, like obviously with being an old boy, I know how sort of the first of Dean sort of put on this pedestal. So at that time when you're you're a part of such a special team, did you at that stage start to put more of an emphasis on your rugby at all? Or was it always sort of just a fun thing for you while you were at school? As a young sportsman, I was pretty focused. I, I guess I, I had a few sort of models and role models, I suppose, that I was watching. And, and a lot of people that I saw achieving were working hard. And one of those people was my dad. So he was a, a marathon runner and used to sort of watch him a little bit, get out there and train and work hard. And I saw some, him achieve some pretty incredible results. And I think for me, it, it sort of set me on a bit of a path of, well, if I want to do some cool stuff and really make the most of my sports, I think that's probably how I need to approach it. So I suppose perhaps I'm not sure whether I was a bit of a, a freak or not, but I, I certainly did start to train pretty hard in both cricket and rugby. And it was never sort of about taking it too seriously, but it was always about trying to maximise what I could do and, and sort of, I guess, to be the best that I could be. And um, I didn't really have any sort of aspirations for uh, rep teams or anything like that, but it was just sort of getting the best out of myself. So that was probably what really helped me sort of really embrace the, the sports challenge at Silverstream. Now, did you make many rep sides while you were at Silverstream? No, I didn't really. In fact, I only made two rep teams right in my last year at Silverstream. So I didn't make the under-16s, which was probably perhaps the first rep team in rugby. You know, that's sort of where the perhaps the young performers uh, get identified. So I didn't make that. So clearly perhaps wasn't sort of recognised at that early stage. I think part of it was physically I was, wasn't a, that big at that time. I was a bit of a late developer physically. And so I think uh, they often took the bigger bigger players who were more physical and everything else. So I discovered weight training probably in probably the end of fifth form and then carried on strong in that and sort of got physically much bigger as a result of it. So that sort of, I think, set me up to be a bit more physical in terms of my play as a rugby player, particularly in seventh form. And because it's, it's sort of a weird one sort of looking back and it's something that my dad always brings up is that because he played in an age where the game was amateur, that sort of when you look to leave school, rugby was always a big deal in New Zealand. And for you, who's someone who progressed on and kicked on to play uh, provincial rugby, what was that sort of transition like? Because there's no sort of draw for the money. It's more so for the love of the game. And so maybe touch on from when you left school and learning to manage your time between something that was, again, just an amateur game. Yeah, so leaving school... I went down to Petone Rugby Club, and as I mentioned earlier, I think the connection with Petone Rugby Club came through the O'Halloran family. And 
for me, I, the reason I chose Petone Rugby Club over Hutt Valley Marist at the time was that Petone was a really strong club and there was a lot of competition down there for positions and it just, that, that appealed to me. And, and I think, again, probably coming back to that earlier point about how I wanted to be sort of the best I could be. And I think going down to Petone, I knew I'd uh, just have a, you know, held a lot of competition just to make, you know, whatever team I was aiming for. And, and so I think that had some appeal. But yeah, I think initially when I did go down to club rugby, I realised there were a lot of guys down there at Petone that were passionate about rugby and they were training hard and some of them were driven to make rep teams. We had, you know, All Blacks in the club and that sort of thing. So there were good role models around how to, how to I guess, train a bit better. And, and even, you know, just I reckon remember watching how those players went about their work at training and trying to pick up ideas on how I could better myself. Time-wise, I always, again, made time for sport. I just loved it. It was a real passion. First year out of school, I went to university, so there was always time to fit in a bit of training, and that's what I sort of uh, kept on with. And, and again, coming back to that earlier point of training's always never, always sort of, I guess, been something that I was prepared to embrace and really try and challenge myself. And I think playing in the forwards, one thing I, I quickly worked out is that I need to get bigger and stronger. And, and the only way to do that is uh, through hard work and training in the gym. So, yeah, the training thing was almost a necessity in a way, but it was also, I knew that if I did do it, I could be a better rugby player. Now, how long was it before you uh, identified or started playing provincial rugby? I managed to make the Wellington Under-18s as my first Wellington rugby rep team in 1986. So that was my last year at school. Didn't get much game time and I was, a, to be fair, probably a bit of a backup player. But then the following year I made, so first year of club rugby, I made Wellington Under-19s and then went on to the Under-21 team, the Colts. So got identified as an age group player straight out of school. And then probably at 20 years old, I think I got a bit of a, more or less, a, I think it's just an opportunity to play for, for the Wellington Lions in, in my first rep game. And that was more or less, I think, just to give me a bit of a taste of what it was like. And I got called in late as an injury cover for the Wellington's game against Warrior Bush over in Masterton. And I just, uh, someone came off injured for the last 10 minutes and I managed to get a little bit of time there. And that was my first taste of it. To be fair, I probably wasn't at that level at the time, but it was just a taster. And that kind of uh, made me realise, you know, that that pathway was there. And it also gave me an appreciation for the level you needed to be at to compete at that level. Because at that time, like you said, there were all blacks playing in the club rugby scene and the provincial level was almost like what we see in super rugby now. So maybe talk a little bit about the, the game itself and how that sort of changed from then into now, because like we sort of look at the provincial level now as a pathway and sort of a way to bleed uh, the young players and who are coming through all these academies, whereas back in your day, you know, you had a backline full of all blacks. So I'd love to get your perspective on, yeah, just sort of how the game's changed. What I, what I did notice is that some players were training professionally, I guess, and had a professional mindset. So they were really doing the preparation um, and working hard on the game. Other guys just had a lot of talent and ability and just turned up and played. And and I think as, as the game went on and as it evolved and probably headed towards the professional era, players started to then rise or fall based pretty much on how, how hard they trained and their preparation. So I think we sort of started to see players perhaps socialising less and uh, drinking less and taking their training a little bit more seriously because it, it was clear that those players that did certainly started to perform better on the rugby field. And so I think for me, what I noticed is that, you know, some of these young players 
started to really uh, sort out their fitness programs and, and really start to apply themselves in these areas that perhaps weren't so important in the late 80s. But certainly come the early 90s, I think, and heading towards the 1996 when the game did go professional, there were players certainly starting to value that work of doing their gym work, doing their fitness work, and, and really starting to see benefits in how they played. Rugby probably mm. still had a real social element to it, though, I think, and that's probably something that probably did disappear a little bit when the amateur era did come to a close, as, as there was a lot of socialising around rugby clubs and a lot of social events. And I, So I think there was a, a balance of training hard, but also then just having a good time off the field with your, with your playing teammates. So that probably did change a little bit um, eventually as professional rugby came in, and I guess the social side of it changed. But those amateur days were certainly really fun and enjoyable because everyone just put in what they wanted to put in and um, certainly the social aspect of the game was really strong and I think some of the friendships we had back then uh, were really cool and really special and not to say that the ones in the professional era aren't but I think we just had a different uh, mindset around the game and made sure we did enjoy each other's company when we were together. Yeah and you went on to play uh, over 80 games for Wellington and you were a part of the inaugural Hurricanes side so what was it like being a part of the, you know, you were literally part of a team or part of a movement of players who moved from the amateur game into the professional game, did it? How did it change the way you trained? You know, were you doing more of it? Because like you said, you'd already been working hard and you're a pretty driven guy. So was it more so everybody was catching up to you or was there actually a step up uh, in your preparation? I think with professional rugby, yeah, there were a lot of guys that were training hard right from day one so there was um, I guess a little bit more structure came into the game and to how we trained as well so we all of a sudden had a, a trainer who was giving us programs to follow. I remember when I first started training coming out of school I was sometimes we used to get programs from clubs or from Wellington Rugby but um, we were often left to our own devices a little bit and it was a little bit of self-discovery I suppose when it came to training what things you sort of took away and used and but I, when we went professional, certainly there was a little bit more guidance coming from the trainers. So I think that was one thing I noticed. But I think, yeah, everybody started to realise that, you know, from professional rugby, you can make a, a livelihood, you can earn, earn some money. And for me, I remember Tana Rumanga, who was probably in the amateur era. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I think he was uh, just a, someone who enjoyed rugby, probably didn't put a lot into it. But then when the game went professional, his training habits were transformed, you know, and, and he became such a dedicated trainer because he saw the opportunity to earn money like a lot of players did. And, and I think for me, I'll, I'll never forget the, how he transformed himself pretty much within a year, I think, being someone who was pretty talented to someone who was uh, well-conditioned, fit and ready for rugby and someone who really, I think, was driven to really try and achieve. So I think you're right. I think some some guys, it was just an opportunity to to jump on and, and start uh, training in a professional manner. And uh, for me, you know, I didn't have to train, change a lot because I was perhaps already um, exploring that already a little bit. But, you know, again, it was just a chance to learn more about uh, that, that physical conditioning side of the game. And, yeah, and that's how it all started out. Did much change for you personally and perhaps for your teammates in that there's a lot more sort of kudos around them? You know, it's, it's super rugby now. So did a lot change you know, off the field for you guys? Because you'd already been involved in the Wellington setup, or did it, was it sort of something that perhaps didn't sort of get the recognition that we see nowadays uh, for years to come, or did it sort of happen straight away in 1996? 
96 was really uh, going into the unknown, I, I guess. We were exactly um, amateur players, as you mentioned, in 1995, and then all of a sudden, a year later, we were um, professional players. And we probably didn't have the setup that we needed to be really great from in that first year. The Hurricanes, for example, didn't have a, a training base. So wherever we played, we just used to assemble three days before and train as a team. We used to do individual training earlier in the week. So we'd do our fitness and conditioning by ourselves in our different regions. And then we used to just to come together wherever the venue was. So if it was Wellington, Hawke's Bay, New Plymouth, we'd just, we'd just uh, head to that venue and, and come together as a team. So it wasn't probably the ideal setup in that first year. But what we did value, I think, was having the time to train and do our conditioning and that, and that sort of thing. So we went from being people who trained in early morning or in the evening after work to people that were able to train during the day. So so training became something that was easily achievable for all the players. And, and I, I guess that probably allowed us to you know, improve our fitness and conditioning um, and, and, and get us, I suppose, fitter. I'd have to say that based on the fitness testing that I did, as a professional player in 96, you know, my, my um, scores were certainly a lot higher in most of the testing that we did. And I think that was probably the same for a lot of players. Now, sort of looking at the way players are treated now and, you know, all the money that comes with it or the exposure, are you somewhat envious of the players of today having a part of that professional setup, but maybe not quite having it all there with it only being the first year of Super Rugby? Or do you uh, appreciate maybe the privacy that players had back in the day when it was sort of an amateur game? Yeah, well, it was certainly a different environment back then, you know, no social media or anything. So, yeah, we were pretty private, I suppose. And I think the area I played in certainly was fulfilling. You know, there's no question I, I really enjoyed it. And and uh, if, if that's how it was to be, you know, only playing a small time in the professional era, you know, I've got, I've got no, no problem with that. I really enjoyed my time. But, you know, I, I really do think the guys that are playing professionally now, you know, I, I really think it's awesome how they can turn their passion into a into a career. It's really awesome. But it, with it, you know, there is, does come responsibility. And, you know, clearly there's a lot more um, of a spotlight on them, perhaps, in, in many respects. And I think there's a lot more uh, expected of them as well. You know, so they're expected to be role models and a lot of things like that. So I think that has probably brought added responsibilities to the modern player. But in saying that, you know, I think uh, we always tried to represent Wellington well when we were a group together back in the amateur days. But uh, I think, you know, now there is certainly uh, more responsibility with um, professional rugby players. Do you think that the ability levels of players nowadays is better than what it was for up-and-coming prospects during your heyday? Or do you think that it's really made no difference, the, the game turning professional. I'd have to say, I think the skills now of the modern rugby player are way ahead of my era. And I, th I think it's probably come down to a few things. I think the game has, has evolved. Probably looking back when I played, the game was perhaps a little bit simple, a little bit. You know, the forwards used to go to every ruck or try to, try to go to every ruck. So there was a lot more space to attack into for the backs. But now it's evolved into these mini rucks and um, all of a sudden we've got these defensive walls out there. And so I think there's more challenges to the to the game now in terms of attack. And I think now the skills have had to sort of adapt to be more creative and to be able to attack with less time and, and, and with more pressure on them. So I think 
I think the skills now are better. And, and probably the other thing we've seen is the development of, of forwards into the attack with their catch-pass skills. So I think they handle the ball a lot more than what we did back in when I was playing. Sometimes you'd hardly touch the ball at all in some games, and that was just how it was. So, yeah, I think I think it has been an evolution. The other thing is, I think, with the professionalism, I think the skills have had people come in and work out how to coach them more effectively. So I think coaches now have got this ability to be more effective in improving the players' skills. So it's all sort of, I think, lifted the bar, which is really great. And, yeah, so the professional game is certainly, I think, really highly skilled. And so with that, though, do you think that you can really compare errors when it comes to teams because like when I think about the All Blacks at this present time and like you said you look at the skill levels of someone like Brady Retallick for example like can you even compare him to the likes of an Ian Jones or a or a Robin Brook because like you said they're playing in two different eras but would you say that Brady Retallick is the better rugby player? Yeah I think it is difficult to compare eras uh, because the roles are so different and they've changed and evolved and uh, so I think yeah, it's it's pretty harsh. You know, certainly Ian Jones, Robin Brook, you know, they were outstanding locks in my era. Um, so I played against both those guys and they were, you know, great athletes and just really did well. You know, there was even, they would have played in the area where there was no lifting in the line-out. So, you know, line-out skills were different. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's a bit difficult to compare. And again, look at Brodie Retallick, you know, he's certainly world-class and, but the game is different. The two eras are different. There's no question. I think if you put up game film side by side from the 90s and the modern game, you'd see so many differences. You know, number of players in the breakdown, you know, the, the way the scrums work, the way the lineouts work, there's just, there's just so many differences. And, and I'm I'm not sure it's fair to compare players in different eras, but um, just to appreciate them all because they've all, those guys dominated all three of those guys you mentioned, they all dominated their eras and um, were world-class. You know, I think that that's the key thing. Yeah, it's a very fair point. Now, you touched on that in terms of like not being able to compare eras, but, I mean, there's no sort of hiding that the game was probably uh, a bit dirtier uh, back in your heyday during the 80s and 90s. And I know that having talked to some of the old heads that they said that if the referee didn't take it into their own hands, that the players would sort out sort of the troubles on the field themselves. And... I guess that's sort of one aspect of the game, but obviously the game's got a lot faster and there's a lot more concern and focus on player health and safety and uh, sort of their well-being off the field as well. So for you personally, having sort of been around the professional environment now and been involved in it and the amateur levels, do you think you would have preferred to play where rugby is right now? Or I do like the challenge of the modern game. So right now the game is super challenging and I think there's a chance now perhaps to be a bit more creative and I think that's what we're starting to see I think more and more creativity being coached into players and because the game now is, is really really challenging to score points to to win games and so I think I really like that creative element of the game that's there now and and that's what it's taking now to, to break down these good defences but the the rugby back, back when I was playing you know that, that was equally challenging it was challenging in different ways as you say it was it was quite a physical era I think uh, you know just a, a toughness about the rugby back then not to say it's not tough now in fact it's probably physically more demanding but the the physicality is different you know we probably had a lot more rucks than uh, the players do these days but you know and so with it came different sort of a different physicality 
but I think I think each era is just unique. I think, and, and I certainly enjoyed our era. You know, it was a chance again to just uh, to find the challenges in in, in the game and, and try and get good at things. So, you know, we were always trying to work out how to scrum better, how to line out better, and, and just to try and dominate teams. And it's no different, I think, today. But the game has the way you do it is just different. There's no question now that the way defences have evolved, it's really transformed the game and it would, I think, uh, create some real pressure now, I think, in terms of the the, the attacks now. I think they're, they're really under pressure from the defences, probably in my time, I think, with the more space and time, I think, it would just allow a little bit more um, freedom to on attack, but that's that's just changed. Like we said, you, you were part of the, the original Hurricane setup and you played for the Lions, but... Did you play any rugby overseas? Yeah, I did. So my, my time at the Hurricanes only lasted one season. I didn't get contracted for 1997. And I decided to play another year of club rugby just to keep on going. But then with an eye to going overseas, and an opportunity came up to go over in the end of 1997 to play a club season over in Ireland. So I went over and played for a club called Old Belvedere. And uh, they were, I guess, a semi-professional setup at that stage. And they had a few overseas players and uh, played over there. And I ended up staying over there in Dublin for six six seasons. And, yeah, had a good time over there. So that was a real opportunity. And it probably only came around because of the professionalism or the professional era, I guess, the, the fact that this club wanted to bring in a professional player to sort of help boost them. And so that was an opportunity that I jumped on and uh, really enjoyed the experience of my time over there. How long were you over there for? It was from 1997 to 2004, so it was uh, quite a stint of time. I stayed at the same club the whole time, so I really enjoyed uh, the club that I was at, Old Belvedere, and they were had some really good people at the club. I really enjoyed the players, um, the coaches, and everything. It was just a really cool place to be. And uh, I think the other thing for me, what, what I enjoyed was just uh, the Irish people. They were really cool people really good sense of humour and uh, really enjoyed life. So it was a it was a good good mix. And I had a couple of opportunities to try and crack into the Leinster team, which was a professional team for the region. But I uh, unfortunately had an injury, which saw me sort of uh, cut from the squad early in the season. So a disappointment there, but that never sort of played out. But at the same time, I enjoyed my, my club rugby and really enjoyed the opportunities that I had with the, with the club. So did you finish up your playing career in Ireland as well? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So 2004 was my last year. So we decided that would be the finish for me. And I was always perhaps thinking about, should I come back and play a year back in New Zealand, play a year of club rugby? But I think I made the right call. And and I was 34, I think, at that stage. And I'd been doing club rugby, rep rugby, and one year of professional rugby, and then the semi-professional rugby over in Ireland. So I think I'd had enough rugby at that stage. So I think the timing was right for me to finish and uh, start to move on to something else. And probably that something else sort of became clear when I was over in Ireland, which was coaching. And that was probably what I started to explore a little bit um, with a couple of little part-time roles while I was still playing. So yeah, you mentioned your transition into coaching. So yeah, like you said, what, what sort of drew you into it and how did it sort of progress to where you are now? Well, as a, as a semi-pro rugby player at my club, Old Belvedere, we um, had the opportunity to go and coach at some schools, some local schools. So they paid, not, not not big money, but just paid a little bit of money for coaches. 
And so that was one way to earn some extra money. And, and I, I went down to a school called St. Michael's and another school called Old Belvedere School and started to do a little bit of coaching. And I, I quite liked it. Again, it was uh, that team environment, which is something I always, I, speak with. I guess as a rugby player, you've you've got to embrace the team environment. And, and as a as now thinking about it as a coach, again, it was cool just to be with young guys wanting to challenge themselves in the game. And, and that was, I guess, to me, uh, the start of the, the coaching journey. To be fair, I don't think I really knew much about how to do it in a good way, but uh, that would come later on, I think, as I as I learnt and and over time. But I still really enjoyed that idea of just being with a team and, and just trying to help them achieve. Mm-hmm. So when you finished up your playing career, you'd obviously done the side bits of coaching while you were still playing. And so when you came back to New Zealand, did you jump at a coaching role straight away? Yeah, I did actually. And that, in fact, that's something that I did get into as soon as I did get back. I I also, not just a coaching role, but I also landed uh, a, a rugby development role with Patoni Rugby Club and the Wellington Rugby Union. So that was a chance for me to carry on working on rugby. And the role had a little bit of coaching to it, but primarily it was around uh, developing the club and developing rugby within Wellington. And so it was not just looking at coaching, but other aspects of rugby development as well. But I, I also had sons as well who started to get into sport. And so that was another uh, thing that sort of got me into the coaching because often, uh, like a lot of parents, sometimes they need help with uh, coaches. And so that was one of the things I, I jumped into as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like I, I know the, the caliber of coach that you are now. I know that you've coached a, a few different rep teams, but maybe sort of start us off with how you got to that stage of your coaching career and how is it that you eventually go on to coach Silver Shoes first at Dean and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, so at Patoni, there was a chance to coach the Colts team, and that was probably the first team that I'd coached um, or been the head coach. So that was, you know, previously I'd just been either a technical advisor or just an assistant coach to someone else. And, yeah, so coaching the Patoni Colts team was the first uh, chance to be a head coach, and that was quite cool because that gives you a chance to perhaps lead a little bit more. And so I really enjoyed that opportunity. And it was a chance also for me to, bring in and work alongside another experienced coach who was able to mentor me a little bit. And, and that really just gave me a, a little bit of a, a taster. And from there, the opportunities just came to get into different environments. I coached or was an assistant coach for a couple of Wellington rugby rep teams. So the under 16 development team and the under 18 development team. And again, that, that was for me as a young coach to start to work alongside some more experienced head coaches and start to look at the process they uh, work through as, as a coach and uh, what they're focused on so that was invaluable that learning on the job and I think that's probably something that all coaches need is a bit of uh, on the job learning uh, you can go along and do courses which is what I was doing as well at the same time so I was doing uh, different courses and workshops and things but that on the job learning that's the real stuff that's a chance where you can practice things and uh, see what's working and you start to get to know a little bit about uh, what your strengths are as a coach and what your work ons are so it was all really cool to get into the the on the job training and I think from there it was just I wanted to see how I could do it better it's pretty much like a player how do you get better and again it was just exploring different ideas finding different ways of doing things and and being a bit curious so I think that's something that as a coach I think I've always had that curiosity and probably even goes back to my playing days I was always curious as to how to get better and and so I think that's sort of helped steer me in the right direction the other thing what I really also did as a young coach was really took on 
a whole lot of different coaching opportunities and they didn't just have to be with rugby I looked at other sports so my sons were playing other different sports during this time and so it was a chance to do it in a different setting so not just being a coach within rugby but then being a coach in another sport so sports like cricket like basketball like touch and so it was a chance to really start to think a little bit and, and see how you could design things for their players so yeah that, that was how things started off and, and just from there uh, I just kept on looking for opportunities I always had to be mindful though that uh, there were always opportunities out there to coach in fact you could volunteer all over the place but I had to be mindful of uh, time as well so time was always a, a restricting factor for me I probably could have coached quite easily full-time but that those sort of roles didn't exist really um, or not not in reality for where I was as a coach uh, so I had to sort of um, make it my hobby my passion and uh, that was probably the the early phase for me is just coaching wherever and just getting that experience. Like I said, you go on to coach Silver Strings first 15, and I'm pretty sure I'm accurate when I say this. You were the first player and coach to complete uh, a Grand Slam. So maybe talk us through that legendary season, or both of them actually, and what one you found more fulfilling. I think to be fair, all three were pretty fulfilling. Uh, I think, um, so as a player in 1995, it was, that was pretty special. You know, we had such a great team environment and we just all worked so hard that year. So that was really satisfying, probably because we had a big physical challenge. We weren't a big team and, and we had to be physically fit and able to just to keep going to out, outplay teams. And that was what we achieved. You know, we played some pretty, good teams and achieving the Grand Slam in 1985. And, uh, you know, we had to work hard against a really good Rongatai team. Uh, New Plymouth was tough. You know, all those traditional rivals, they were tough. And so I think we just battled hard and worked hard and that was really, really satisfying. And I think as a coach, then when we achieved the Grand Slam in 2017 and 2018, when I was coaching, again, they, they were, it was really cool to help those players, I guess, hopefully become a really good team. And I, th I think they did. But I think both those teams were really good teams. And, and it was good to just play a small part and bring them together because they were, you know, we, we knew we had some special boys in the group. They were self-driven. They were, you know, already working hard. You know, we only trained with them twice a week on, on average. And, and so we didn't see them doing all the extras that, that we know they were doing. So there, there was a group that was really motivated. And so it was good that we were just able to kind of just uh, set up an environment for them to really play some good rugby. And I think that was that was cool. Uh, that was really, really special. I think I think for me, what I've always liked as a coach is, is, is just helping others find their best stuff. And, and, and that's what I, I think coaching's about a little bit, is just uh, working out what the group in front of you need. And I think the coaching group that I was working with over those two years, where we we... we used to spend a lot of time talking and planning and working out what, what the group needed. And I think, I think in general, we, we did a pretty good job in, in recognising what it was. I'm sure there were things that we didn't always get right, but I, I think uh, the key thing was is that um, we always tried to put the players first. And I think that's always something that I've, I think we did a good job of. I think we always made sure we did connect in with them and, and made sure that where we were trying to steer the team aligned to where the players wanted to get to and, that, that needed a, for us to have some good relationships with the players. And I think we did a pretty good job getting to know our players and then just uh, helping them go about their work. 
Do you think that your exposure and experience at having played such a high level of rugby puts you more on the front foot when it sort of came to coaching and that you could sort of relate to players more and understand their perspectives in comparison to someone who maybe didn't achieve at quite the level you did? I, th- I think being an ex-player, I think, can help. can help for sure. I think you you do th- see things through a player lens and, and that's that pretty helpful at times because I think it's important for coaches to understand how the players might be seeing things. And so, you know, things like non-selection, I certainly had that experience as a player, so I know what that feels like. So it, it sort of gives you a bit of empathy, I think, for when you're dealing with players around selection. But I think I think there are a lot of people that can still be good coaches because they can get experiences of that from other parts of life. So I think I, I think being a player is one way to get experience uh, for coaching, but it's it's that's not the only way. And, I, and I'm, I'm I'm probably the more I've been into coaching now, I realise you know you can take a lot of things from different parts of life and bring it into your coaching, um, and and that's what I think the good coaches do. You see you see a lot of good school teachers uh, become good coaches because school teaching and coaching have got a lot of similarities. And so while the school teachers may bring or may not have that rugby experience as a player, they could still bring some really good skills and how to teach people and how to create a, a class environment, which can is very similar to a team environment, you know? So I think, I think there's a lot of crossover. And so I think you can come from anywhere to be a good coach. And, and that's probably, I'm sure if you did look back at the, you know, the, coaching journeys of a lot of people, you'd see some of them have come from quite different uh, backgrounds and brought different experiences into their coaching. Yeah. Now, as someone who's obviously had a, like I said, you know, you've sort of been around the game uh, whilst you're at high school and played it at a high level and then you get to the stage where you're actually coaching boys who are playing at a high level back at Silverstream as well. And obviously with the game turning professional, there's been a real emphasis on the, all these academies that have sprung up and do you think that the professional game and the emphasis on getting at these kids early has has wrecked the game and sort of taken away the fun that rugby's meant to have at that age? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I think I think fun is almost now having to be brought back into the game. I think um, perhaps we went a little bit too far uh, towards this work and being all serious. And, and now I think... Um, People are starting to pay attention to their professional environments a little bit more, and I think they're starting to realise that there needs to be a fun element in there. And uh, now, fun might isn't necessarily just joking around and uh, being silly when you're training or playing, but it's it's it can look different at different times uh, of your of your week, you know. And uh, and fun can still be about working hard, but I think what we're starting to see now is I think some professional environments are aware that they might have gone too far into this sort of serious side of sport and perhaps not allowing that fun element to be there. And I think I think for players to really achieve their best, they've got to be enjoying it. And I think there's got to be a fun element in their environment. And what it's going to look like will be different for every environment. But I think it's pretty important, I think, if you're a coach and you're designing your environment, is how are you going to create those fun elements um, on the field, off the field, and uh, help the players to enjoy their experience because if they're enjoying it, they'll commit more, they'll train harder, they'll and uh, they'll be better. I think better players if they're having whatever this fun thing looks like in your environment. So I, th- I think I think yeah, you could say that 
professional rugby has perhaps made the sport a bit of a job. And, and I, I think the really skilled professional organisations that are trying to still have that fun element in there, I think are doing some pretty cool stuff and I think achieving more. You look at some of the professional teams around the place so that I hear that I hear, I don't have first-hand experience, but the Crusaders look like Scott Robinson does some pretty cool stuff down there. Uh, Saracens over in the UK sound like they're pretty intentional around having fun. There are two examples, you know, there's probably a lot, lot more. And so I think I think it is, it is a challenge, I think, for coaches to uh, see if they can be a bit more thoughtful about making sure that experiences are fun because when you're spending a lot of time in a training environment, um, you do need to make sure it's enjoyable and there is some fun there. And I think the other thing that I've sort of learned firsthand is that when you sort of get to high school, especially now, and when you're going to some of these bigger rugby schools, is that there's such a, a big emphasis on if, you know, if you're a keen rugby player, you know, sort of making these rep teams and that there's just so much time and energy that's invested by these unions into their under-16s and their under-18s that on the other hand of all of this is that, you know, if you don't become one of those players who gets picked as part of these rep teams, you sort of find that they lose their interest in rugby. And I, you know, I, I'm not to say that I'm one of those guys, but, you know, I've had mates who I thought were, you know, excellent rugby players, but they just sort of lost that interest because they didn't get the opportunities that maybe some of their peers and other players had. And do you think that's been detrimental of the game as well? Yeah, I think selection or missing selection is a problem for the game and I think sometimes it's really hard once you miss selection in a certain level to then get selected um, at the next level after that and and sometimes I think uh, that's the challenge is that players could lose interest and their motivation for the game will drop and so they don't take it as seriously and it becomes uh, something they only just uh, do with their mates so I think you're right I think I think it is a problem for the game and, and you've probably started to see sports look at this quite closely because now they've done away with a lot of age group rep teams. You've got under 13 rep teams being disestablished in, in many sports, not just rugby. And I think this is around that idea of let's uh, just have have our players at this young age just enjoying the game and, and trying to get really good at it and, and, and enjoy the game for however they want to enjoy it rather than starting to select players and say you're either good or you're not good. And um, I, so I think the less of that that happens, the better. I think we always want to try and create opportunities because I think the other thing that's pretty clear to me, being a late developer, is that everyone's going to develop at different stages and different ages. So I think you always want to try and allow for those late developers to come into into your into your rep programs. And so I think the later you, you the later you start selection around rep teams, possibly the better. Some people might argue that um, the opposite, but I think uh, for me, I think you want to allow and include more players in your development programs rather than getting them down to a really small, narrow group. So you are starting to see that sort of start to emerge in a lot of provincial unions now. They're starting to set up wider wider rep programs, which I think was going to be good for the game in the long term and, and hopefully keep more players aspiring to go to higher things, which is what um, I think all the rep programs up higher, even the professional teams, they want more players more good players playing the game. So I think uh, we've got to try and make sure our system, our, you know, our model of how we develop players reflects that. Yeah. Now, I don't want to get you into any trouble with this, but it's another point that sort of just sprung to mind and it's sort of on that note of 
these guys sort of being shoulder tapped by agents at age 12. And I know there was a there was a big story uh, last year or the year beforehand about uh, St. Kent's and their poaching of schoolboy players. And I guess on one hand, you know, if you sort of see it through the school's lens or the way that they try and sort of frame it is that these big schools like your St. Kent's and your Scots and all that, they're offering these opportunities to uh, students perhaps from poorer demographics and low socioeconomic areas and opportunities to you know sort of step into that sort of private education but then on the other hand you know there's sort of this thing about whether or not these guys are actually having the emphasis put on the education as what these schools are sort of projecting into the media and I mean for someone who is obviously competing with schools like this when you sort of get to you know your top fours and your hurricane sort of regional champs what's your sort of personal opinion on it it's a challenging situation i think from an individual perspective i think the opportunities that, that some some players get to go to these schools and, and get a great education and a great sports experience is, is pretty great i think and pretty cool i, I think um, without doubt i've seen some younger players who perhaps weren't very academic when they perhaps went into some of those schools, uh, then go on and get university degrees, which I think is pretty cool. So you've got to say, well, that's that's pretty cool how that happened. But it, it does create a challenge in terms of the competitions. And I, I guess the way the competition is set up at the moment, the, the teams that have got the strong um, scholarship programs um, tend to be at the top of the competitions locally and then go on to the regional playoffs so it does. It does create a little bit of a two-tier playing field, I suppose. You know, there's there's schools that have got first teams that are all boys that just come through the gate right from year nine and then just carry on all the way through school. And then you've got these teams that are uh, bringing in players uh, through scholarships. And yeah, it's 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 challenging. But I, you know, perhaps they could change the competition structure a little bit and um, create some different uh, competitions and perhaps. A, the super schools want to go and play their own competition. That, that, that's perhaps where they go. Um, I'm not sure if that's the right solution, but um, you know, yeah, yeah. What, what is, what is. But um, yeah, it, it does make it tough. There's no question. They make no bones about it that some of these schools that have got scholarships and have set themselves up um, with these great rugby programs, you know, that they intentionally going out to help young players become professional athletes, and and they're probably achieving that to some degree, and so. That's cool, but it, it, as you say, it, it probably does impact the competition because some of the schools that traditionally might have been strong just can't uh, compete, whether it be in terms of talent, whether it be with resource. So it, it does create a bit of a dilemma there. And uh, I know some of the traditional schools, are, you know, who have been traditionally strong, who have now sort of perhaps uh, fallen down in terms of where they sit nationally, are probably a little bit upset by that. And uh, yeah, so it's yeah, it does create challenges, but and saying that, you know, some of those schools do do lift the level of competition and, and uh, some of the other schools that perhaps uh, don't have scholarships or those sort of type programs have, have improved their programs just internally with by doing things better internally. And I think, um, you know, so that's probably driven a higher standard right throughout um, first 15 rugby. You mentioned the, the point that these schools uh, don't hide away or don't shy away from the fact that they are sort of trying to groom these guys to become professional rugby players. And we touched on that point about making the game fun and having it not so much be a job. Do you think that's too much pressure to put on a kid? Because I, I think at one level, you, when, when a scholarship is offered, I think 
there's obviously yes it's an opportunity to you know to make yourself better you know get yourself a better education um have better networks potentially but then on one hand i don't know i think sort of from my opinion especially when you're identifying these kids from low socioeconomic areas is that that's quite a lot of pressure you know to put on a 14 year old you know if these parents are then you know sort of being told that you know their kid could be an all black and that we're going to groom him to be an all black and that the actual the one that's sort of having to ride all of this is the 14 year old like i think for me personally i i'm not that big a fan of it because you know you, you could almost i don't know take the fun out of rugby for that kid because you know they are sort of trying to groom them to be professional sportsmen at such a young age yeah i think it probably comes down to the design of the program i think if it's well balanced it's got some good scientific evidence backing how you how you're going to do it i think you know you probably can do some good things you see it in a lot of other sports Rugby, rugby, to be fair, is a sport where people develop late. It's just by nature you've got to be physically pretty strong and uh, robust. I think that's all positions, not just uh, in the forwards now. I think any, every position now you need to have some physicality about you. Even uh, the Damien McKenzie's of this world, they they need to be able to be durable and uh, take the physicality of the game. So I think it is a late developing game. And I, I think you're right. I think 14-year-olds need to be nurtured in a in a way that's um, aligned to where they are in terms of their maturity and uh, you know so I, I don't think I don't think they want to be pushed into a program that's not age appropriate so I think or not just age appropriate but where they are physically and mentally and socially you know all those sort of things it needs to be really carefully thought out and I think the good the good schools I think perhaps might be able to manage that I'm not sure um, I'm only just guessing now but I, I think I think there's enough evidence and uh, research out there on how to do things in a good way but whether the schools have uh, taken that advice on I'm not sure um, yeah. but uh, you know I think I think it can be done I, I think there's a lot of sports that are very good at developing uh, young athletes it's whether whether we are doing it great in rugby I'm not sure I don't personally deal with athletes that young and my environment where we tend to probably have boys that are probably a little bit older coming into the first of the environment where I am and, and you do notice the difference between a year 11 and a year 13 player and they are quite quite different in how they look at uh, their rugby and how they um, are socially um, you know the boys that are a lot older are, you know just their life is so different and um, so you're right I think there is some challenges there and so are you able to individualise your, your training of those different players in your team? Are you able to give the 14-year-old what they need versus the 17 or 18-year-old what they need? You know, So I think um, you've got to be pretty careful. It's not one size fits all. And uh, and that's that's probably a trap, I think, for in a team sport sometimes is that sometimes we give the same programme to everybody and we treat them all the same, whereas they're not. They're individuals. So I think you've got to be careful. And, and again, coming back to that, idea of fun we've got to make sure that that exists and 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 fun for each of those age groups is going to be different so how do you cater for that yeah yeah exactly i think we've we've covered quite a broad range of uh topics under that sort of coaching umbrella but again like you you've mentioned numerous times that you're a guy that loves a challenge and you've always been willing to put in uh the hard work that comes with achieving great things so I know that you're still early on in your coaching career and you probably still have goals and aspirations going forward, but 
I think sort of looking from where you are now and what you've covered in sort of your coaching resume and what you achieved during your playing days, what's been the more challenging uh, pursuit? I think coaching is a little bit more complicated um, because I'm, I'm probably worrying about uh, more people. Whereas I think as a, as a player, you're pretty much focused on getting yourself right. I suppose that's probably initially where you start from. And then perhaps if you're a leader within a team, then you start to worry about a few more people. But uh, yeah, so I, th- I think they've both got really um, unique challenges. I, I think the coaching thing, I'm just learning so much all the time. And for me, uh, even though I've been coaching now since, you know, probably... 2000 probably was where I first started coaching, so 20 years now, and um, I'm still learning, and I'm still thinking of, or discovering, I guess, ways I can be better as a coach. So that for me says that, you know, coaching is perhaps a little bit more of a challenge, and there's always ways you can get better at it. Whereas with a player, you know, you've kind of perhaps just uh, focused on the same things over and over, and it's just a case of getting... Uh, you know, for example, stronger. So how do you get stronger? So you, some of it is changing and evolving. So it's probably changing and doing different programs along the way and uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think um, as a player, you're probably, you are naturally just um, probably, a, your, your main focus is, is being the best you can be. So um, whereas for me as a coach, I'm, I'm probably trying to help a group become the best they can be. So it's that's probably where I see the coaching challenge um, and, the, and the difference between the two. Have you found either one more enjoyable? I've loved, loved both, really. I certainly, uh, perhaps if I was physically a little bit more able, would have carried on playing for a bit longer, but I think my body had had enough at that stage. So um, I think that was probably the timing was right when I did stop. Yeah, it's it's they've both just been super enjoyable parts um, of, of my life, you know, and it's quite nice how I've transitioned from one to the other and... For me, I guess when I do reflect back on both my coaching and playing, it's just been the learning on the way. There's been it's just been endless, you know, and, and the learning's come in all different areas, you know, whether it's as a player, you learn from your teammates. So for example, when I was down at Batonia Rugby Club, it'd be watching the guys, the experienced Wellington players or the All Blacks that we were playing alongside, watching how they went about their stuff as a young player, so that I could sort of start to apply some of that into my game and then as a coach, it's been, you know, trying stuff and then sort of working out, did that work or did it not work? And then also, again, just learning from other coaches. So, again, when you get alongside and work with another coach, you start to look at how they do things and whether it's something that you could apply into your coaching. So I think, yeah, both 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 aspects have been just equally rewarding. Um, and the learning that's gone on has just been continuous. And, and I think that's probably something that I... Uh, do value now in life in general, you know, it just, it just keeps evolving and you keep discovering new things and uh, hopefully ways you can be better and be a better person. Now, did you ever have any other outside interests outside of rugby, like during your playing days? Like, what did you get up to on a day off in Ireland? Or, you know, what were you getting up to on your day off when you were a hurricane? So when I was younger, I probably got into a little bit of um, golf not not that not that particularly well, but golf was always uh, uh, something that rugby players seem to like to do. So we often did a little bit of that, and quite often the Hurricanes would often have a nine holes of golf on the 
afternoon off if we didn't have training or something we might go and play play a bit of golf so that was always one thing um I, i've always enjoyed just going to the beach so going to the beach was always pretty cool and that was always a summer activity i suppose i've always enjoyed uh getting out and um doing a bit of uh, swimming in the water and that sort of thing. So that was always something that was enjoyable. And probably cricket was another sport I was into. So I've always um, enjoyed playing a bit of cricket. I played cricket up until I was about 20 years old and uh, then had to sort of pick on one sport and um, rugby was the sport I chose, which um, was probably the one I was more passionate about. But I um, still really enjoy following cricket. In fact, that's probably one thing I do do a lot of still now is um, follow sports. So... I love the challenge of sport and what it provides to the athletes in it and um, always appreciative of uh, how people go about their stuff. Always enjoy watching people trying to achieve things in sport. You're a father of three and I guess like uh, you personally, what's that sort of challenge been like? You've had the challenge of being a player, you've had the challenge of being a coach and then of being a dad. Do you think that uh, your your role as a, as a father has allowed you to become a better coach as well? I think so. I think um, when I look at all the teams I've coached, all my son's teams, it, it's it certainly, well, firstly, it provided me an opportunity to um, enjoy sport with my son. So that, that's, or sons, you know, so it's, that, that's been pretty cool. So I think just, um, you know, trying to create an environment for them to enjoy sport, I think, because I, I, I love sport as, a, as an athlete. Um, at all levels, you know, from when I was young all the way through to um, when I was playing professionally. And so it's been cool to sort of try and shape an environment for them to enjoy a sport. And, you know, that, that's what I've really, really, really enjoyed. Uh, so that, that that time together is, is pretty cool. As, as a dad now, it's, it's it's quite challenging to try and coach your son. I think uh, it's best not to tell them too much. I think that's what I learned pretty quick is the best just to let them discover things through the game rather than you tell them. So... I wouldn't sort of have too many words of advice for my boys when they were playing. I'd just sort of let them work it out pretty much so, um, or, or get the co-coach to come in and uh, have a talk to them about something. Uh, but, yeah, so I think, I think you know, being a parent has probably got a lot of crossover again into coaching. I think, you know, you're, you're trying to help your children develop and grow and um, you're trying to support them. And those are good attributes for a coach as well. So there's a lot of crossover, I think. You know, it's probably, you know, there's probably situations that you could um, think of that are very, very similar from parenting that are also to pop up in coaching. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think that, that covers all the boxes that I want to tip from both you as a player and a coach. But uh, one of the things I like to wrap up with with my interviews is oh, I have a, a string of questions. So if I can fire them your way and you just do your best to answer them. Cool. Wicked. Okay. Um, this is it, is, it is sort of a silly, uh, a silly segment, but I will, I will tone it down for your sake. So um, <laughs> if, if, if Tim's enjoying the rugby on a Friday or Saturday night, what beer has he got in his hand? Panhead. Is there a particular panhead? IPA. Okay. Yeah, IPA. Okay. We're going to go back to your playing, uh, your playing days for the second question. Uh, who was the biggest coach's pet? That's a good challenge. Um, from from what, what era was that? Was that just my playing days? Yeah, well, it, it can from be from your coaching days. Uh, just someone who was always, you know, sort of around the around the coach and was always sort of the coach's pet. Oh, that's challenging. Gee, 
I'll go back to my Wellington Lions days and I'll say John Preston. John Preston came up from Canterbury and um, I think, I think, I'm not sure whether he was uh, enticed up here. It was during the amateur days and I'm not sure whether he uh, uh, was enticed somehow. I'm not going to go into anything more than that, but um, <laughs> he was, he was always uh, someone who really good guy, but um, also seemed to be uh, one of the coach's favorites. <laughs> Do you think you'd agree with that? Oh, no, I think he probably deserved it. He was um, actually, <laughs> he actually, when I say he was the coach's pet, he was actually probably someone that was referred to as uh, um, someone who was doing the right thing, someone who had the right approach to the game, someone who worked hard. So I think I think he was just acknowledged as a, a guy that was um, doing the good things. And uh, some of the other boys probably thought, oh, geez, this guy seems to be um, doing nothing wrong. But it, probably was because he was actually doing a lot of good things and uh so um fair play to john jp he was he was a good good guy to play with and uh a guy who modeled a lot of good behaviors for for um rugby players to learn from okay okay john preston now what does tim get off to or what does tim get up to on his day off or if the boss was to say tim go home you got the day off what's the first thing you jump at my big thing at the moment is stand-up paddleboarding so I've got a stand-up paddleboard. I've had that for about three or four years and um, just started off just paddling on flat water just uh, in the harbour. So I live in Patoni, so just heading out uh, from Patoni just uh, on the flat. And then I've progressed, and this is the, the thing that's really challenging me at the moment is to try and catch some waves on it. So I've been heading out to Lyle Bay and uh, jumping on some pretty small-sized waves, to be fair, but that's that's the challenge at the moment is to try and get good at catching waves on my stand-up paddleboard. Interesting. Stand-up paddleboarding. Okay, fourth one will take you back to your playing days as well, or I know that you're you're still into your fitness and your gym work, but what is your least favourite fitness block? It probably has to be a workout I did with my son Nick just recently, actually. Um, it was 100 reps of 10 exercises, and uh, the exercise we did that really killed me was calf raises. We had to do 100 calf raises, and I think... I couldn't walk properly for about six or seven days afterwards. So um, that was a real blast and uh, really shook my world from a fitness perspective. Um, it was tough. And uh, like I say, the walking for the next uh, uh, six or seven days afterwards was just really, really tender and painful. Yeah, Aaron definitely puts you through your paces. I know that firsthand. Um, what's your favourite cheat meal? At the moment, the meal I'm really enjoying is a burger from Dirty Burger in Petoni. So that's, um, they got some pretty good burgers down there. So I'm really enjoying those with some fries and a nice Coke, a nice ice cold Coke. Nice, nice, nice. Has there ever been something that you've purchased, like you've gone out and splashed a whole lot of money on, and within a week you've been like, that was such a dumb purchase? Or have you got quite responsible with your money, um, <laughs> having been a family yeah. man? Uh, no, there's probably definitely some dumb things I've bought. Um, I'm just trying to think of a, a good one. Um, well, one thing I've probably over overdone really is, is fitness equipment. Um, I've got a bit of a bit of a home gym, so I've always uh, probably buying too much fitness gear. Probably the thing that I brought that I haven't used much is probably this sandbag thing. So it's um, 25 kg sandbag with handles and um, probably something I haven't used much. It's probably just uh, sits out in the garage for decoration. Okay. Who's your guilty music pleasure? I've got pretty mixed taste, to be fair, and it's pretty random. 
must admit I'm enjoying some old stuff at the moment. So uh, Elton John, actually, I, I watched uh, the movie on the plane recently and um, really sort of got into his story. I think it's Rocket Man, I think the movie. And um, mm-hmm. so I've been listening to a bit of Elton John lately. Okay. John, eh? Now, I know you're a happily married man, so I won't get you into trouble with any of this, but who initiated the interaction between you and Katrina and how did you propose to her? Oh, good questions. Um, so it was a little bit of a setup uh, for me meeting Katrina. So this wasn't really our first date, but it was a setup to meet her. A, fr- a mutual friend invited me to a pub and she told me that all my friends were going to be there for a drink. And so it was the middle of the week, a Wednesday night, I think, and uh, this bar called Molly Malone's, which is now shut down in Wellington. So we went there and turned up and the only person that was there was this mutual friend, uh, Fiona, and uh, Katrina was there. And um, I was kind of a little bit surprised thinking, oh, I expected more people. And then it sort of became quite clear that it wasn't really uh, going to be anybody else coming along. So um, from there, we went on a date, I think, the following Friday night. So, um, uh, yeah, so that was uh, how we first met. We we did get on well right from day one, uh, I have to say, right from that first uh, set-up meeting. And, um, yeah, so that's how we connected up. Okay. And then um, proposal. So I think... Um, we got married pretty quick or we got engaged quite quickly after we met. So maybe, I think maybe 10 months after we met, we got engaged and uh, we probably had things a little bit planned out actually. And um, I think Katrina knew it was going to happen. And uh, I think uh, it was just down at uh, a really romantic place in Lower Hutt, uh, Avalon Park. (laughs) Down and got down on one knee and uh, proposed. So it wasn't the best well thought out thing, but um, that probably uh, sums up me as a as a young romantic. I think I was pretty lame, uh, and I think Katrina still thinks I'm pretty lame when it comes to romantic things. But um, uh, yeah, so that's where it happened, and uh, proposed there, and uh, she said yes. I think she knew it was coming, and uh, we kind of toyed with the um, thing. So I don't think it was any surprise when I did uh, propose to her. Well, you got the right answer, so it can't have been yeah. that bad. All right. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> another one from your playing days. Who was the dirtiest player you played with and who was the dirtiest player you played against? Well, yeah. Oh, that's tricky. That's tricky. Um, if, you, if you don't want to burn any bridges, I understand, but I, I'd love yeah. to get an honest answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's probably a little bit tricky to <laughs> name names. I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty harsh. Uh, I had to say that um, the amateur days did sort of lend themselves to dirty players because I think uh, a lot of games didn't have TV cameras um, and uh, or many close-up shots as well. That was the other aspect, I suppose. So I think, yeah, let's just say there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, I think, to be fair, though, the era I played in was probably a lot cleaner than the, perhaps the 70s and early 80s because the stories I used to hear about were horrendous, you know, and I was thinking, was almost enough to put you off playing rugby, some of the stories, the way people were, you know, knocked about and, uh, you know, punches thrown just to put people off their game and things like that. You know, it was uh, it was pretty horrendous. And, uh, you know, geez, if, if you had a signing commissioner back then, they'd uh, be busy as, I think. Um, that's, that's pretty much how I remember it. So, yeah, probably hard to name names because I, I think the game, the game was pretty much where you gave as good as you got sort of thing. So I think... Yeah. Uh, you, you could say that everybody had, you know, probably rucked, rucked players on the ground, which is, that was that was the standard thing, and that was all okay. You know, the referees allowed that to happen. 
there were probably those players that threw a few more punches than others, to be fair, I think, and that's probably uh, where things probably, um, where people probably perhaps started to get into some different territory, I suppose. Uh, probably mm-hmm. one guy that, that probably won't mind me naming him is, is Richard Watt. He was, um, <laughs> he, was a, he was a tough man, and he was pretty intimidating, uh, to be fair, and uh, he certainly, he, he gave out a lot of stuff, but he also got probably a lot of stuff back from other players, from other teams, but he, he certainly uh, was someone that didn't shy away from it. And uh, I think I think how he approached the game is that sometimes he didn't have the skill to outskill players on the field, I think. So he would um, uh, get into their heads by um, putting them off physically with um, some dirty play. Intimidating. I should have lived with that word. That would have been a bit more PC. Yeah. All right. So my last question, um, another funny one. Now, I'm, I'm going to need you to honor, uh, answer this honestly. Which sure, of your sure. three boys has the most rugby ability? Ooh, big question, that one. Big question. I'm going to answer it this way, and I think, I think, I think this way is probably, uh, there's probably a bit of science to it, to, to where I'm going to go with this answer. Okay. Uh, I'd, have, I'd have to say that it's probably Tom, um, the youngest. And the reason I say he's got high, high ability is that I think the youngest in the family always gets dragged up to a higher level by having older brothers. So this happened in my family as well. So my brother, my brother Simon, so he was playing rugby with me and my mates and uh, he was forced to adapt and become a really, really good player so that he could join in our games. And so his skills were kind of quite, well, they were, they were really high level skills. And, and so he got dragged up. And so he was way, had way more ability than I did. And I think that's what's happened with Tom as well. So playing with Nick and Luke, his older brothers, um, he's had to develop his game faster, develop skills so he doesn't get smashed in the backyard and develop a sidestep, develop all the skills, you know. And um, so, and plus he's watched his brothers kick and learned from them how to kick. And so I think... I think, um, yeah, it probably comes down to I think the youngest in the family tends to probably have the greater skills. Uh, I might I might even sort of say that that, that might apply, apply to the Barretts as well. I, I think Geordie Barretts a way better player than Bowden Barrett in terms of skill and ability. Um, um, doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a better rugby player, but I think uh, Geordie Barrett's got exceptional skills for me. And I think in our family, Tom's probably the, the younger one. He's the guy with the real skills and ability. And probably yeah, when I was growing up, my brother Simon, he was the one with the special, special rugby skills. All right, there we have it. Well, Tommy. Sweet. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for taking out what's been close to an hour and a half. Um, I really appreciate your insight um, and your time, and I wish you all the best um, in this weird time that we're in, and hopefully we're allowed out of our houses sometime soon. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, it's going to be... Uh, Interesting when we uh, finish this lockdown and how we get back into life again. Yeah, some cool, cool challenges ahead, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. All right, you stay safe, Tim. I'll catch you later. Thanks, Jordan.